0: You need to go to the hardware store
1: downtown, ask for Mr. Jenkins. Young boys still required adventures with wildlife and wild things.
2: Kev, he said, never learn to do something you don't want to be saddled to the rest of your
3: life. it's time for the apple Seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, and more. And we've been bringing them to you just about every day since 2013. It's such a pleasure for me to be here. I'm Sam Payne, your host. And away we go. You know, some days are more difficult than others. You might lose your keys. You might get gum on your shoe. You might miss the bus or get a parking ticket. And when frustrating, annoying, or difficult things happen, we can choose to be upset set, or we can let it roll off, face the day ahead, and choose to say, it's all good. And on today's episode of The Appleseed, you get to hear a story about that very principle, even that very phrase. You'll also hear stories from the great storyteller, Milbury Birch, and from Kevin Kling, a story from Susan Strauss, too. You won't want to miss a word. And to introduce the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Samantha Danes, one of our assistant producers. Samantha, it's great to have you with me.
4: Good to be here.
3: And we're going to hear a story from Andy Offit Irwin. Tell us a little bit about this tale, won't you?
4: Yeah. So Andy Offit Irwin tells a lot of stories about his aunt Marguerite, right. <laughs> um, and they are always outlandish and always funny. And his aunt Marguerite is this widowed, eighty-five-year-old um, aunt of his who, um, in this story, kind of is is like the the aunt of all the neighborhood children. Yeah. She she's kind of a motherly figure to all these kids who play around her yard and um, it's it's just a cute story of her interactions with the neighborhood kids. Yeah,
3: Aunt Marguerite, sort of the controlling idea about that character is that after her husband died when she was in her 80s she went back to medical school and became a doctor and opened a hospital with another bunch of rich old ladies. I think it's
4: called Um, the Southern White Old Lady Hospital.
3: That's what Andy calls it. (laughs) Well here's the story. It's called It's All Good. Andy Offit Irwin here on The Appleseed. The
5: old oak tree at the old farm finally fell. Marguerite knew there was some root rot going on, and it wasn't close to anything that mattered, except for grass and the pasture that she rents out to that little Holstein farmer. But now the tree has fallen, and it's time to cut it up. So she goes to Jason, he's the oldest, gonna start college next year, got trained on the chainsaw. He's gonna wear the ear protection, the little yellow mini marshmallows that you put in your ears. He's gonna wear the goggles, he's gonna wear two layers of thermal underwear shirts so nothing gets caught in the chain. Because she said, you know what it'll do to wood?
0: Imagine what it'll do to muscle, skin, and bone.
5: <laughs> and she went she told the teenagers to get the truck running, the 1948 Chevrolet pickup truck that belonged to her husband. That she's been keeping running for years, for 30 years or so, she's had the teenagers in the neighborhood work on it. It started when one little boy told her years ago that the carburetor needed to be rebuilt. And he rebuilt it, and all the other teenage kids looked around and watched it being rebuilt. That was 30 years ago. No car in all of Georgia has had its oil changed more than Marguerite's truck, because every time one of the other teenagers wanted to work on it, she let him. And it's been well cared for. It's been tuned up a hundred times. New plugs, clean engine. It looks great, because she knows she doesn't own it anymore. (laughs) Any master padlock key can start it. (laughs) So the kids will start it. They're not allowed to drive it. It doesn't have the insurance for it belongs to the neighborhood. She usually uses it once a year. She puts the big wooden sides on it and has the kids fill it up with sweet gum leaves, having the little children separate the sweet gum balls from the pine cones like a like an Easter egg hunt, filling up the leaves, letting the kids jump from the cab into the leaves, and she takes it to the world's largest compost heap in the old dog kennel at the farm. That day, while they were working on it, the next oldest boy wanted to rebuild the carburetor. And he took it out as she watched him, wrapped up, sitting on her two lawn chairs, one to proper feet up on. She had set up the card table, the old card table in the yard. They were working outside. And a little bitty spring on the butterfly valve. He was working on it and it went bing and it flew away. Gone forever. Nobody even saw where it went and she watched this boy, and he was that weird combination of angry, but knowing that an 18-year-old can find that inner child real fast, because it's only a few years ago. She saw his face flush. He wanted to cry. He was so embarrassed. All the other kids were laughing at him, and he was the boy in charge. He was the senior child, and he looked at Marguerite, and she knows that she is in his forever memory. He doesn't remember not knowing her. She's been with him. She babysat him. She's cuddled him. And he looked at her, and he said the most courageous thing she ever heard from a kid like that. He said, it's all good. (laughs) One of her favorite pieces of current teenage slang. She had so much trouble getting through the 70s and kids would say, man, that's bad. And she'd say, oh, I'm so sorry. No, Miss Marguerite, that I means good. I am so confused. <laughs> but she knew, when this kid said, it's all good. She knew he was grasping at hope. And she called him over. She said, you know what
0: you need to do now? You need to go to the hardware store downtown. Ask for Mr. Jenkins now. All right? You ask for him, and he'll he'll help you find a part for that spring because that's a rebuild kit. You can't get that from the auto parts store. They don't work that way. And you need to go to Mr. Jenkins because he's old and he'll find a part, even though it doesn't have one of those little barcodes on it. Because <laughs> you know they have stuff in the hardware stores that's been laying around for a long time.
5: So he did. He went and he asked for Mr. Jenkins and he had the carburetor in his hand. He said, Mr. Jenkins, I lost that spring right there. Mr. Jenkins looked at it. Mr. Jenkins has been working at the hardware store since the middle 1800s. (laughs) And he took it silently, and he took it behind what everybody knew was his unofficial little stand-up work-on-stuff counter right next to where they cut keys. And he took off the humiliating red helpful hardware person vest (laughs) and hung it on a wooden peg. He never liked that damn thing anyway. (laughs) And he looked at it, and he went, and he pulled open a drawer, and he pulled out a spring that the boy knew was too long. And he pulled out some needle-nose pliers, little bitty ones, and he hooked it to an alligator clip that was mounted right there on the wood, and he cut it. He looked at it. He looked at the butterfly valve. He cut it one more time. And then he donned some jeweler's glasses with a little swing-away magnifying glass. And he bent the spring. And then, having old man wisdom, resisted putting the spring on the carburetor himself. He handed the carburetor to the boy, and he handed the spring to him. There you go. And he looked at the boy and said, you want to fix it here? You can fix it right here. You can come on right around the counter right here. You can fix it right here. If, I know we have people from the north, that means you may come around the counter right here and fix it here if you would like. <laughs> and he did. And the boy didn't need the magnifying glasses because he's a youngster. And he, clicked, And it was just the right length, the right size, and the right tension. The young man said, "What owe you, sir, Mr. Jenkins? What owe you?" And Mr. Jenkins looked over at the ice cream cooler that they have, and he was really hankering for one of those Mickey Mouse ice cream bars—the one that are on a stick and that has the brown chocolate ears and the white face with the little dot eyes.
0: Oh, I'll be sixty cent.
5: And the boy took the sixty cent. He handed it to Mr. Jenkins and he watched Mr. Jenkins open up the cash drawer, throw the 60 cent in it, and close the drawer. And when the boy walked out, Mr. Jenkins went over to the ice cream cooler and pulled out his Mickey Mouse ice cream bar that he had earned. (laughs) And when the boy went back and Marguerite was there, and he said, it's all good. And Marguerite said, let me see. And all the kids gathered around and Marguerite put on her reading glasses, you know, that little half ones with the little bump on the nose bridge. And she always said the same thing around the teenagers and the preteens. She goes, let me put on my half ass glasses. And the kids would laugh like crazy because it was almost cussing, but not quite because ass is not a four letter word. And if you put an E.D. on it,
0: it's a five-letter (laughs) word. Well, that looks good now. Did you put that on there?
5: Yes, ma'am, I did. It's all good. (laughs) Marguerite lit the fire that night. Had her book. Had her quiet. She had been listening to some jazz. Secretly, nobody knows. She listens to Dizzy Gillespie late at night. She lit the fire and thought she wanted some hot chocolate. She's really happy about that. Doesn't have it every night. It's got to be cold outside. And she's got to be heating the room with the fire, you know. So she went into the kitchen, kind of excited about doing those little hand rituals that you do, you know. So she opened the drawer, and she wanted her favorite long-legged iced teaspoon, the one she'd been using for so many years to open up the little tin of Nestle's quit. You know, the little metal cap there. She loved the way it popped. So satisfying. And the spoon was worn out from the 50 or 60 years that she had been doing that. And she opened up the cupboard and pulled out the Quick. And she put it on the counter and she pulled out her long-legged iced teaspoon. And there was no metal cap. It was a plastic lid. Who did this to her? She was so disappointed, she felt ridiculous. So many years of popping open, especially the first time you do it, you know, that pop. Every time it's just sort of a reminder of how good it was the first time. So she pulled off the plastic lid feeling just heartbroken. She was embarrassed at herself, and nobody was around, how disappointed she was. And she peeled off the little plastic liner that they had to put there in case some moron wanted to poison you, so you'll know something happened to it. And she was just about to put the powder in the cup, and then she remembered. No, you take the mug, you fill it with whole milk, You put it in the microwave. You set it for beverage, 16-ounce. And you sit there and you watch it for that minute and 20 seconds it takes to cook. And then you remember the times that you made hot chocolate on the stove and that layer of fat that comes to the top of the pan and how hard it is to clean it out and how much you kind of hated it. The hot chocolate was ready. She pulled it out. She put the powder in it. She threw in her marshmallow. Very happy about how easy that was. And she said to herself as she sat down in front of her fire, It's all good.
3: Andy off at Irwin with one of his very wonderful Aunt Marguerite stories. Aunt Marguerite, of course, Andy's fictional great aunt who in her 80s, after her husband dies, goes back to medical school and becomes a doctor and opens a hospital with her friends. And uh, uh, the Aunt Marguerite stories are always so filled with warmth and good humor. It's been a pleasure to listen to that story with Samantha. Samantha, as you listen to that story, what are some of the things you love about
4: it? Uh I, I love the kid Jason I think that's his name it is, is I, that's how I always was because I'm the oldest sibling in my family and every time I made a mistake all my little siblings and friends would laugh at me and I was like no I have to do this right I'm the oldest now I am <laughs> shamed by all my younger siblings but I love how you know he just he just moves on and he rolls it rolls off his shoulder and Marguerite too, she's like, Just let it roll off your shoulder and yeah. I really like that. It's just the idea that, you know, little things are gonna bother you, the plastic cap is gonna be on, the, <laughs> the hot chocolate. But but just let it roll off your shoulder. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And of course, the people that you meet in the world of Aunt Marguerite are, at the same time, unlike most of the people that you know and exactly like the people that you know.
4: Mm -hmm. (laughs) For sure.
3: It's always fun to hear Andy's uh, sound effects as well. Oh, yeah. He's an extraordinary whistler and very, very capable at making all of the sound effects necessary to communicate all of the great little moments in the story, right?
4: Yeah, I think I think I read somewhere that somebody said he has a silly putty mouth. Yeah. <laughs> he can do anything with it.
3: <laughs> well, it's always a pleasure to hear an Andy off at Irwin's story. Andy's a longtime friend of the show. And, Samantha, thanks for bringing that tale to us. Anytime. There's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne.
4: You're listening
2: to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment.
3: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure to be with you on this episode of The Apple Appleseed. A moment ago, you heard a story called It's All Good, a story told for you by Andy offit Irwin. It's one of his Aunt Marguerite stories. Always a pleasure to hear Andy on the show. And you're going to hear from Milbury Birch and Kevin Kling and more coming up. But because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story of yours that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room, here's a memory. It's not a memory of mine. It didn't happen to me. It's only something that I heard about, as we were all hearing stories back in 2005 about Hurricane Katrina. In a time beset by difficulties of all kinds, tragedies even, it seems appropriate to share this tale, a memory, here on the Appleseed. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal.
4: The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
3: It's August 2005 on a Wednesday morning and the dawn rising on the pavement outside Harrah's Casino on the Mississippi finds some 30 men in sleeping bags rubbing the sleep from their eyes. There were no rooms that night in the New Orleans area and their beds for the night have been whatever dry patch of parking lot they could find in the shadows of their pickup trucks. Tuesday night... They made the long drive from Sulphur, Louisiana, pulling boat trailers. They're construction workers, all of them, captained by Ronnie Lovett of the R&R Construction Company. He calls these guys Bubbas or Swamp Men. And whatever else they are, they're born fishermen. You've seen satirical caricatures of guys like these on gas station postcards. Now, well, Lovett himself has deep enough pockets that he's buying gas for all their boats, as well as paying their wages, though none of them will be hammering a single nail on an R&R construction site for the next few days. See, this Wednesday is different from most. This week, the world changed. It was the week of Hurricane Katrina, the deadliest storm to hit America in 80 years. And on this Wednesday people need help. The crew goes to work just south of Lake Pontchartrain. They launch a ragtag fleet of fishing boats and personal watercraft out over the flooded streets of New Orleans. Within minutes, many of the boats return, filled with bedraggled survivors. Survivors helped unsteadily down from rooftops or through attic windows. Survivors who, for days, have watched from their makeshift high-ground shelters as the city is gulped down by dark waters blasted through broken levees, watched as unthinkable views have unfolded before them, views that have included the ripping asunder of their neighbors' homes or their own. And then, this Wednesday in August, the coming of the Swamp Men, Ronnie Lovett's boys, holding out their strong hands. Through the wake of Katrina's wrath, they come over the wreckage of a city, and they have just enough swamp sense to navigate the maze of streets, just enough courage and respect for authority to know just how much weight to give the warnings and counsel offered by weary officials. They tool directly into the mangled, yawning entrances of apartment buildings in their boats, Buildings that are ready to fall down, buildings that are already leaning crazily on flood-battered footings, and they moor conveniently at the feet of indoor staircases, and down those staircases amble, hungry, and thankful survivors. In the wake of Hurricane Katrina, people all over the world sat in front of their televisions hoping that something could be done for those who needed it. You've watched the admirable compassion of those who, in times of need like that, ask, what can I do? And then, of course, you've seen some, like the swamp men flying Ronnie Lovett's banner, who, with all the half-crazy, spit-and-bailing-wire horse sense they can muster, simply hang all politeness and, without even asking, do what they can do. There are hurricanes all around us, of course. There is a tempest in the life of your neighbor who just lost her mother to cancer. The floodwaters are rising in the life of your mailman whose son is far away fighting in the deserts of the Middle East. The dam is bursting around the girl at the checkout counter whose young husband has just lost his job. And often, our impulse is not to crowd these besieged by tragedy to let them have space to grieve. And in times like these, it seems more vital than ever to hang all timidity and, in whatever way you can, push off across the dark water looking for survivors, pulling right up to the foot of the stairs and holding out your strong hands. ¶¶
4: Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
3: Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Stories from Susan Strauss, Milbury Birch, and Kevin Kling coming up in just a moment. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the books that we come to love, the films that we see, the songs that we listen to, the meals that we share. Talking about some of the great ways in which stories come into our lives is something we love to do with friends. I'm thrilled to be joined in the studio by a longtime friend of the Appleseed, one of our favorite storytellers, Kim Whitecamp. Kim, thanks so much for joining me.
6: Thank you for having me.
3: You know, food memories can be so potent, you know. And if you're sharing a meal with somebody and it's a longtime favorite food of yours and a longtime favorite food of theirs, conversation is inevitable. And I'm talking, even if the food that you're eating is not precisely like you remember your favorite instances of that food or they remember their instances of that food— that becomes the topic of conversation. This is how we used to make it, and oh, well, this is how we used to make it, right? Food memories are some of my favorite doorways into storytelling between people. You've got some favorite foods.
6: You better believe I do, Sam. <laughs> one of my favorite topics. Yeah. <laughs> I love food. My mother... Was a great cook, but yeah. she did have some things that are questionable. Like, um, and it was—I know quantity was important because there were a lot, there were six mouths to feed. Yeah. And hot dog fiesta still is in goes down in the history of our family as like the biggest joke. It was like <laughs> hot dogs and kidney beans and corn and tomato sauce in a big skillet, like a big electric yeah, skillet. Yeah, um, I do not look for that, so I can relive memories on that one. <laughs> But there is a dish that when I travel, I try and find it just because if I'm missing home or feeling lonely, um, I look for chicken, gravy, and biscuits on Saturdays. I would get so excited if I – because it's still – my mom knows this is my favorite meal that she made other Mm. than ham, greens, and green beans, and potatoes, which is my all-time favorite meal. (laughs) I loved her chicken and biscuits. She would roll out the dough and baptize it with flour. (laughs) And in a saucepan, she would sauté really finely minced onions and fresh parsley and a little bit of spinach. And after she had rolled out that biscuit dough into a big rectangle, she would uh, smear that concoction from the fry pan, all the onions and a little bit of butter all over it. And then she would roll it up into a big log. Yeah. And she would slice it like a Swiss roll, right? And then she would have cooked off chicken in a big pot cooked it off for a while, and then she would pick all of that out, pick out all the chicken off the bones, and then take that liquid and turn it into a gravy, and this lovely gravy and chicken would go over all of those biscuits, <laughs> and she would cook it, and it was in these white um, corningware dishes with little blue corn flour Oh, sure. Of
3: course. Yeah, yeah. And
6: I actually can remember the dishes
3: yeah. because
6: it's such a memory of sitting there and watching her do this.
3: Yeah.
6: And those biscuits would rise up real tall. And when she would serve it, she'd scoop way down in and put that biscuit and gravy on your plate. And it had this beautiful green swirl. <laughs> and you'd you'd kind of take your fork and open it up and get the gravy and the chicken on it. Man, did I love that. <laughs> And when I travel, if I see any place that has really good chicken gravy and biscuits, I yeah. eat it. And it is never like my mom's. Yeah. But I instantly feel comfortable. Yeah, I instantly feel just calm and peace. And mm. I feel not as far away from home.
3: Hmm. That's People use the term comfort food pretty lightly, right? They use that term pretty casually. But you're talking about a genuine sort of. Truly a comfort yeah, food. Yeah, truly a comfort food. A food All the way that, down to my toes. A food that in <laughs> times of trouble will take you back. To, and it, uh, you know. Yeah,
6: and what's really interesting is she always had whole berry cranberry sauce on the table with it. And to this day, I can't, I don't want to eat chicken, gravy, and biscuits without a little bit of tart on the
3: uh-huh. side. So, you, in your own cooking, then, is that. it? I can imagine somebody saying I, I, I don't want to try to recreate that recipe because that experience belongs to me and my mom with her as the cook, right? But I can also imagine you saying I I want that's that's a tradition that I want to carry on. For you, what is it? Do you do you are do you, do you make chicken and biscuits and gravy? It's gray? funny that
6: you say that because I asked for the recipe years ago and I've never made it. Huh. I have the recipe handwritten by my mother in a really precious. Uh, it's a. It's like a. You can put the index cards in it. To oh hold sure, the recipes, sure, yeah, of course, yeah. And they are precious recipes, and I've never made it, and it's weird huh. that there's like a mental block that I don't feel that it's my place. It's huh. a sacred dish of my mother's, you know.
3: It, you know, it, it, it's. Uh, I think sacred is perhaps not a word that a lot of people use to describe a food experience you know but I think that everybody gets that you know when you when you talk about that experience being sacred I know that I think oh yeah that's you know that's the right word and it's it the mo- right word for that kind yeah of and
6: it was more than the dish at the end yeah it was sitting there with her yeah while she did it yep you know it's the whole thing
3: and when you eat a plate of chicken and biscuits and gravy even though it doesn't approximate your mother's right it's so interesting to me even to hear you talk about it where uh, all of the detail that opens up you remember the blue flowers on the on the dish you know you remember all of those things all it, it, it's a it's a memory that unfolds to be even bigger than the food
6: and you know what sam whether the chicken and gravy biscuits comes from one place or my mother the calories and what it does to you are all the same all... so there's a connection there right
3: that's right <laughs> so there are some effects that, that other people's biscuits universal. and gravy are able to replicate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm with you. My mouth is watering. It's uh yeah, is a tough conversation to have, you know, when you're as far away from dinner time as we are. So yeah, what a pleasure to have you, Kim. Thanks so much for joining
6: me. Thank you, Sam. <music>
3: Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to talk with our old friend Kim Whitecamp. We'll try to have her back. There's a lot more coming up this hour on The Appleseed. You're going to hear a story from Milbury Birch called Tia Astucia up next. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne.
2: You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment.
1: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne.
3: It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. Up next, we've got a story from Milbury Birch. This is from a collection of stories called Because I Said So, Stories About Mothers and Kids. And in this story, uh, a mother and daughter are kind of at the center of this story. The daughter makes some pretty big mistakes, and the mother knows exactly what to do to step in and save the day. It's a story called Tia Astucia," and we're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed.
7: Tia Astucia. Long ago, there lived a widow whose face was wizened, but whose wits were sharp. A good name for her might have been Tia Astucia. For all that she was both withered and shrewd, she had a daughter who was soft and simple, let us call the girl, Bieza. Bieza's lovely face and large eyes were like beacons as she sat in the window each day, plaiting her lustrous thick hair. One after another, the young men of the village were drawn to the window like bees to a blossom, till Tia Astucia would swat them flat with a shout out the front door. You flittering fools! You insects! Be gone before I get my broom! Each day, Tia Astucia hurried to prepare meals, to do the washing, to tidy the house, or to tend the old donkey in the yard. All the while, Bieza would lie abed, or sit stirring her coffee, dreaming of one suitor or another coming to rescue her from her mother's industriousness and watchful eyes. The mother would stop her chores only long enough to berate her child. Lazy girl! Big eyes will get you a big belly! Only hard work will win you a happy home! And never did the daughter mind her mother. One morning, Tia Astucia called to her daughter to assist her in lifting a great pot of lye off the fire to pour over the dirty clothes in a tub by the hearth. The girl paid no more attention to her mother that day than another, but lingered by the window. In her haste, Tia Astucia tried to lift the pot herself. It tipped, and the hot lye splashed down on her sandaled feet. The old woman gave a shriek, and as soon as she'd taken in, a second breath began to scold Beaza. "'You ninny! Always watching for a husband! Well, away with you, then!' MAY YOU MARRY THE DEVIL HIMSELF! Ah, we must be careful what we say, even in anger. God is not the only listener. The next day there arrived in that town a handsome stranger astride a fine horse. He dressed like a gentleman and wore a silk hat perched jauntily on his head. His hands were soft and white, and he walked as though he were prancing on his toes. He called himself Don Demonio, and expressed great interest in a manor house for sale on the edge of town. Going back and forth through the village attending to his business, Don Demonio passed Tia Astucia's house at least twice a day. You will not be surprised to know that before long he and Bieza had exchanged lovesick glances. He was emboldened to knock at the door and pay his respects to the old woman and her delectable child. When Don Demonio spoke of his desire to court Bieza, he made sure to mention his holdings, the number of his servants, the quality of his horses. It was clear to Tia Astucia that of all the moths attracted to her daughter's flame, this one had wings dusted in gold the old woman concluded that if such a man sought Bieza as his wife, at least the silly girl would be well cared for. And so Tia Astucia gave her grudging consent to the courtship and chaperoned several visits between the two. Biesa was delighted with the attentions of her suitor, but the rest of the villagers reserved judgment about Don Demonio. It may have been his white hands, his prancing step, or the fact that he never removed his hat, Tia Astucia noted that his presence made the old ones in particular uneasy. On a day when the priest was away, Bieza accepted Don Demonio's proposal of marriage, and at his insistence, a wedding was hastily planned to take place in the churchyard. Tia Astucia observed all this, and began to make her own plans. She took Bieza aside and advised her thus, When you enter your new home, close up every window and door, then take this olive branch, which has been dipped in holy water, and gently strike your husband about the shoulders. In that way, you are staking every woman's claim as ruler of the household. After the ceremony, The wedding couple rode away in a fine carriage, and Tia Astucia rode on her old donkey to the manor house, carrying a small glass bottle and a stopper. She arrived just as her daughter followed the instructions the mother had given. Having closed up every door and window, Bieza playfully struck her husband about his shoulders with the olive branch dipped in holy water. Don Demonio fled her blows in horror. In his distress he threw off his handsome visage, displaying the horned head, hoofed feet, and snaking tail of his devilish nature. When she saw him for what he was, Beza took up her task in earnest. He begged for mercy as he grew smaller and smaller with each blow. At last he was small enough to look for escape through the keyhole in the front door. Tia Astucia was waiting for him, with the glass vial placed over the keyhole on the other side. Don Demonio flew into the bottle with such speed that he knocked himself out at the far end. Chuckling aloud, the old woman stopped at the bottle and climbed back astride the donkey. Her astonished daughter pulled open the door to the manor house and heard her mother call over her shoulder, "'Poor girl! A widow on her wedding night!' Go back to your window, Biesa, and see what kind of husband God sends you. Then the old woman rode her donkey into the mountains, where she deposited the stoppered bottle among the rocks at the summit of the highest one. With the devil imprisoned on a stony mountaintop, peace reigned in the village and perhaps the world. Ten years passed. Tia Astucia lived in comfort, provided by her grateful child who had married again and moved to the city. Still the old woman was as shrewd and industrious as ever. One day a young man, a soldier of fortune, passed through that town. We shall call him Listo, for he was cut from the same cloth as Tia Astucia. When he passed by her house, he found the old woman sweeping the dooryard. Sharp eyes and sharp wits recognize each other and soon the two were teasing one another as though they had long been fast friends. Tia Astucia invited the young man in for a meal, and then sent him on his way with the blessings she might have reserved for a son. Listo's journeying took him up the mountain she had traveled ten years before. As he walked, he saw the afternoon sun glint against something shiny in the rocks. Stooping to investigate, he picked up a small stoppered bottle and peered at the shrunken creature within. "'You look like a clever boy,' gasped the devil. "'Let me out of this bottle, and I shall give you your fondest wish.' "'My fondest wish is to marry the king's daughter,' said Listo, sighing at the very thought of her whom he had glimpsed only once. "'As good as done,' promised the devil. "'Now let me out.' let us spend some time together first," said Listo. I am eager to hear how you came to be trapped in the bottle. And so, Don Demonio was obliged to tell the story of his fate at the hands of his mother-in-law, Tia Astucia. Hearing it, the young man laughed loud and long. Then Listo asked the devil his plan for winning the princess's hand. Don Demonio said, once I am free, I shall make the princess ill by creeping under her pillow." He saw the alarmed look on Listo's face and added, "For only a short time, until you can come and claim to be a doctor and cure her. Surely the king will pledge his daughter in marriage to anyone who can cure her illness." At length, Listo agreed to this plan, but he did not free the devil till they'd reached the outskirts of the city so that the princess need not suffer over long. Within the hour, a proclamation was made that the princess had fallen deathly ill and would be promised to anyone who could cure her. Listo found himself in line behind a procession of others, healers, doctors, and hopefuls. By the time the young man's turn came, the king was nearly mad with grief over his daughter's condition. In his despair, the monarch announced that anyone who tried to cure the princess but failed would be hung for impertinence. Even as he spoke, a scaffold was being raised in the courtyard of the castle. Without a worry in the world, Listo strode to the princess's bedside. Her face was so pallid that his heart stood still. He bent forward and fiercely commanded the devil to be gone, and quickly he whispered to Don Demonio, crouching beneath the pillow. Let us spend some time together first," said the devil, chortling just loud enough for the young man to hear him. For Don Demonio knew that if he lingered under the pillow long enough, Lista would be hung for his failure to cure the princess. This idea amused the devil greatly, as he was overdue to cause as much mischief in the world as he could. As night began to fall, the king sent his guards to bring the so-called doctor down to his punishment. Thinking quickly, Listo put off the soldier, saying, "'The princess spoke to me only moments ago. "'She asked that we ring the church bells "'throughout the kingdom. "'Without that happy sound, "'she may not grow strong enough to speak again.' The guards took this message to the king, and he commanded that all the church bells be rung simultaneously. The sound of all the holy bells was so immense that even the priests clapped their hands over their ears. Don Demonio came flying out from underneath the princess's pillow, clearly in agony. "'What is that dreadful noise?' he cried, writhing in pain. "'Didn't you know?' asked Listo. "'The bells are ringing to announce the arrival of your mother-in-law, Tia Astucia. "'When she heard that you were visiting the king's palace, she came straight away to see you here.' "'No! No, not that infernal woman! "'Let me out of here!' shrieked the devil, "'and he flew out the window and was seen no more. "'The princess opened her eyes "'and saw Listo standing by her bed, "'looking at her tenderly. "'She smiled at him, the first of many smiles. "'Their wedding was a gladsome one, And if Tia Astucia was not their guest of honor, well, surely she should have been.
3: Pia Astucia, told for you by Milbury Birch here on the Appleseed. That's from a collection called Because I Said So, Stories About Mothers and Kids. Up next, a story from Susan Strauss. Susan tells stories about the natural world, stories of nature from all over the world. And uh, this story, however, is a story that doesn't come from any foreign country. It comes from her own home, her own experience as a child growing up in the suburbs but loving nature. The story is called A Refuge from Suburbia by Susan Strauss, here on The Appleseed.
1: Behind the grand window, created by a sliding glass door in the rec room in our suburban Northern Virginia home, I, as a seven-year-old, played and dreamed and looked out over a magnificent backyard it was a backyard that descended into a stream-sweetened valley with dense thickets alive with rabbits tadpoles and garter snakes and then ascended again to ridge-top fields of sun-baked wild flowers bleached grasses and a scattering of lone birches That backyard used to be someone's farm, but to me it was a canvas. A canvas for the imagination, a setting for the wild projections of a seven year old's imagined dramas. From my view in my monkey's lounge, high up in one of those backyard birches, I remember making the conscious decision that seven was clearly the best age to be. But for those considerably older than seven, there were better uses for that open space. Within the year, three-story brick houses with seven bedrooms, four baths, and two car garages lined up on that ridgetop like cavalry soldiers ready for the attack. The sun-sweetened fields were replaced by short-cut green grass lawns and boxwood hedges that had been manicured with a military precision. The stream that once struck through the heart of that valley, catching starlight like thin threads of reflected neon, was now swallowed up by a system of manholes that zipped together the property lines of newly formed backyard neighbors. My mother responded to this by planting trees and bushes. Compared to the yards of our newborn neighbors, we were the hairy man. We had the one-quarter acre of wilderness in suburbia. And I remember one rabbit family survived in our backyard for a year or two after the other houses went in, and then they disappeared. Now, in this suburbia, this cleaned and corrected landscape to emerge on the American horizons in the 50s and 60s, young boys still required adventures with wildlife and wild things. They would gather together in after-school bee brigades, I remember. Bees were the last capturable quandary left. And with glass jars in hand, they scouted the backyards for bees. Risking a bee sting, they would capture many and then proudly show them off to the neighborhood girls. Then they would fuddle around, wondering what they should do with their captives. Should they kill them or release them in the next street? This was their mission to rid our block of dangerous creatures. And I was learning about bees in school then. I was passionately touched by one fact of their natural history. When a bee stings you, it must die. In that last desperate act of self-defense, they give up their sword— How heroic, I thought. It was a kind of a give-me-liberty or give-me-death kind of a stance. And I argued and argued the bee's plight to the bee brigade to no avail. Now, there comes a time in the life of every activist, a test of the tenor or the truth of their convictions, and mine came one day with the ice cream truck. It was jingling its bells down the street. Okay, okay, cried my mother. Go get 50 cents out of my purse. I was running to catch the truck, and just as it turned the corner away from our street, I managed to get the driver's attention, and soon i was with ice cream this was no flavored icicle but a deluxe moment in ice cream heaven a nutty buddy a vanilla ice cream cone with chocolate and nuts caked on the top. I scooted down through the next-door neighbor's backyard, entrenched in vanilla thoughts, because, you know, you're always supposed to start with the sides of the ice cream. Yow! The wildfire of a bee sting began to spread across the bottom of my foot. My ice cream was somewhere... Attracting ants in the grass. And there was the bee. I watched it. And. And. Until it stopped. I picked it up. Still like a leaf. Why I didn't crush it like the other kids would have done, I don't know. I just looked at it black velvet shawl over its shoulders, and tiny crystalline wings like they were some stained-glass windows borrowed from some fairyland cathedral. Why, I, I didn't crush that bee that day. It had stung me. It's still a question for me today. Maybe, maybe just because it was a a kind of a miracle refugee. A refugee miracle from that backyard that I remember once golden, once wild into the visible
3: distance. <laughs> Susan Strauss with A Refuge From Suburbia here on the Appleseed. We're going to wrap up today with a story from Kevin Kling, who describes his zodiac sign as Minnesota with Iowa rising. Well, here's a story that Kevin tells about his dad and a trip that his dad took to Europe. It's a story about one man discovering another country and finding wonder in the things that we sometimes take for granted. Whether or not you've been out of the country, we know you'll enjoy Kevin Kling's story. Here's Dad's trip to Europe on the Appleseed. Whenever my
2: father had something of great importance to tell me, it was always done in the car. Facts of Life in a 67 Mustang. We're moving to the country, White Comet station wagon. Divorced from my mom, metallic blue Chevy, on the way home from a fishing trip. And although most of these talks were planned, sometimes he would simply take his eyes off the road and look directly at me and say, You know, Kev, the day you own a pair of wingtips is the day I stop worrying about you. Or, Kev, don't get killed just because you know how. One time on the way back from a sales call, he turns to me and says, Listen to me now. If you ever get a chance to be an astronaut, grab it. Okay, Dad, I said I will. Now I knew where this came from. My dad grew up on a farm, milking cows, slobbing hogs, driving a tractor, never going anywhere except over to the next row. But when he was 16, he learned to fly from the Clarkson brothers, barnstormers, and crop dusters, crazy Clarksons they were sometimes called. And when dad turned 17, he lied about his age so he could join the Navy because he wanted to fly and the Navy was still accepting pilots. Unfortunately, Dad put on his application he could type 60 words a minute and the war had already ended in Europe and soldiers were returning home in droves and they needed to be processed. So Dad spent the duration of the war behind the controls of a Smith Corona. Kev, he said, Never learn to do something you don't want to be saddled to the rest of your life. The most surprising one of all was one day when my dad turned to me and said, Kev, I'm going to Europe. What? Europe? Europe? He says, I always wanted to go there, and I'm not getting any younger. But Dad, I mean, up till now, my dad's travel was the Midwest, and that was it. I knew he liked to travel, but I always felt it was for the sake of movement, not to actually get somewhere. This is why an astronaut made perfect sense. Space travel is the ultimate in traveling for traveling's sake. But Europe, that's a destination. I could tell he had his heart set on it. So I offered my tried and true advice. I said, okay, Dad, look it. You're going to England. Bring an umbrella. I know this sounds crazy, but once you get wet there, you never dry off. I don't know why. And don't eat the food, any of it, especially in Scotland. I ate something there once, and I'll never laugh at the dog for licking the garage floor again. People from Scotland go to England to eat. Oh, and I said, and Dad... Be sure to learn the language, a phrase or two. Well, Kevvy says, I'm pretty sure they speak English in England. Oh, that's what you think, I say. Besides, you know what I mean. As the trip approached, I became increasingly worried. You got everything? Passport? Umbrella? Did you remember an umbrella? You got money? Pounds. You got to bring pounds and Yeah, it is. It's real money. I was a wreck until he returned. But when I picked him up from the airport, my dad had this huge grin on his face cavie said, I swear, it's the best time I've had since Nixon was in office. Looky here. And he hands me the stack of photographs. You took pictures? I'd never seen my dad even use a camera. I opened the pack and I took out a huge stack of pictures. The first photo was a cow. Long, matted hair, brown, staring right at my dad. The second photo was a cow. It was the same cow. It looked like, but it was a different angle. The third picture was a cow. It was the same cow. The fourth, fifth, sixth. Finally, I said, Dad, these are all pictures of a cow. He said, Oh, that's not just any cow, Kev. That kind of cow is where all the cows from this country came from. That cow is the great-grandmother of all cows. Now my dad's bursting with pride. I look back at the photos of my dad's trip to Europe. I continue looking through the stack of cow pictures, and I realized my dad had gone somewhere. He'd gone home. The last picture was of a woman mowing her lawn. I said, Dad, what's that doing in there? He says, look at that lawnmower, Kev. Isn't that the darnest thing? I wanted to get more of it, but I ran out of film.
3: <laughs> A story told for you by Kevin Kling. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. You can find us online at byuradio.org Appleseed. And I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed.
7: Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of
6: BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.